I have the best view this morning. I get to see all the kids run out. That is very fun. Good morning. My name is Kevin. Uh, I am the pastor of youth, uh, youth Ministries here at Grace Point Church. And it is uh, such an honor and privilege to be able to uh, speak with you this morning and to talk through um, our, our, our text this morning with you. Um, and I'm also thrilled to know that um, I am considered cool because my <laughs> shirt is untucked. Um, so thank you for that, Chuck. I appreciate that. Um, we'll wait for Tim to get on board with that, I guess. Um, so the, this morning I want to start with a question. How many times have you said something that you really didn't mean or you knew you weren't going to follow through on? I'm talking about something like, hey, we should really get lunch sometime. Or, yeah, uh, that'd be a great idea. Um, maybe I should sign up for that race. Or, how about this one? Hey, I'm really sorry to hear that. Um, I'll be praying for you. See, sometimes when we speak, stuff doesn't happen. Sometimes when we say things, um, nothing comes of it. Now that is in direct contrast to the way that God operates. When God speaks, stuff happens. When God says something, it's going to happen. You can take that to bank. It's a guarantee. Um, so this morning, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, the eighth chapter of the book of Acts. Um, to, get, to get oriented a little bit, I'm going to kind of start from the beginning and talk through a little bit of it just to get some context, but we're going to be focused on verses 26 to 40 all the way to the end. So, the situation that we walk into in Acts chapter 8 uh, is highly volatile. Stephen has just been stoned for um, preaching the gospel, and an extensive localized persecution has just boiled over in Jerusalem. So it's very tense. The followers of Christ, with the exception of the apostles, have been scattered. They're essentially running for their lives. Now, we have some examples of this going on right now that we can picture. Uh, Syrian refugees running for their lives, being displaced, being, moving from their homes because their lives depend on it. So you can picture, picture a little bit of what the situation is going on. And not only that, but Saul is on the loose. And uh, this is before he's been, had his conversion experience and, his, and even his name change. This is Saul breathing out murderous threats against Christians, going from home to home, uh, taking people from their homes, putting them in prison. Anyone professing Christ is in danger. And, and, Paul is doing, and Saul actually is doing everything that he can um, to try and stop the spread of the gospel, to stop the message of Jesus Christ. Yet, in the midst of all this instability, we have Christ followers that are going out and preaching the word. They're preaching the gospel because they can't help it. Their lives have been changed. They have experienced a transformation unlike any other. And they're doing the exact same thing that Stephen did, the exact same thing that got Stephen killed. They're going out and openly procl proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's word is going out and stuff is happening. Enter Philip. 
one of those chosen to oversee the feeding of the widows in Acts chapter 6, if you'll recall that story. So we have this former waiter or servant who appears to also be um, a, a fearless Christ follower and preacher too. You'd think he along with other Christians would be hiding in a hole somewhere and waiting for the dust to settle. But no, he gets displaced from Jerusalem to Samaria and instantly he's proclaiming the good news. He's proclaiming the gospel. Um, Now, what's interesting about this is Jews and Samaritans, they didn't mix. They didn't do a lot of stuff together. They didn't hang out. So to have Philip, a Jew, offering something or interacting at all with a Samaritan is a little bit absurd. Um, And that the Samaritans are accepting anything from a Jew, extremely remarkable. Don't, don't miss how crazy that is. Um, but what we have is the Spirit moving with power, moving with almost a tangible force that you can reach out and touch. Um, Philip has an attentive audience, and the message is being received without confusion or resistance. Imagine that. Imagine addressing a huge crowd of people, and your words are received exactly as you intended them. That's a preacher's dream, I'm telling you. To to speak a word and have everyone that you're speaking to uh, affected and impacted in exactly the way that you wanted, in the exact way that you intended. And so, uh, and it's more than just people receiving the the message. Miracles are taking place too. Um, Spirits are being cast out forcefully and dramatically. Those with chronic conditions are being healed. There is an excitement and an energy in the air. This is an atmosphere of joy and rejoicing. And Philip, he's right in the middle of it. This ministry is exploding. It's busting at the seams. And there's no controlling it. And Philip, he's right there. I can only imagine the rejoicing going on in Philip's heart, and in heaven for that matter, at the many who are accepting the word of truth, the gospel. Jesus is being made known and is being received. This is success by any standard. But it doesn't stop there. In the next scene, we see some high-profile VIPs paying Samaria a visit. It might be better to call them VIAs, very important apostles. Okay, at this point, it's official. Philip is involved in a movement that has completely opened up and taken off. Peter and John, apostles, have come down from Jerusalem to survey the scene because they heard, um, they heard all the way up in Jerusalem that something was going on in Samaria, and they had to check it out. But after confirming uh, that the word of God is indeed being received, Peter and John authenticate the, word, uh, they authenticate the work of Philip. They authenticate what he's been doing. They say, this is the Holy Spirit. They lay hands on the people, and the Holy Spirit is received. The people have been believed, they've been baptized with water, and sealed with the Holy Spirit. The ministry has been confirmed yet again. And it goes even further. Philip is living out the last words Jesus spoke before he ascended into heaven. Here's what he says. Jesus says, but you will receive power 
when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. That's Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Right at the beginning of Acts, that's how, how it all starts. Philip is so clearly in the right place, both in terms of geography and mission. Peter and John have signed off in the ministry, and the words of Jesus confirm it. If I was Philip, I would just keep on doing what I was doing. And I'd probably pat myself on the back, too. I mean, this is incredible. But then something strange happens. Philip has a close encounter with an angel. And this brings us to our text, which we'll be focusing on this morning. It's Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40, if you're not already there. Through this narrative, we'll see that God's word is trustworthy because he has a plan. We'll see that God's word is trustworthy because he is in control. We'll see that God's word is trustworthy because Jesus is the word. All right, let's start with verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. God's word is trustworthy because he has a plan, even when it seems to be leading us into the wilderness, a desert place. Now, we're at the peak of Philip's ministry. Everything's clicking into place. Everything's rocking and rolling, okay? Philip is experiencing success by any stretch of the imagination, but then he encounters an angel that says, go. Go into the wilderness. Take that desert road. Uh, I don't know about you, but I would have thought twice about listening to the angel at this point. <laughs> okay? I, I'm, I'm sure there were phone calls to make, emails to respond to, meetings to attend, outreach opportunities, not to mention the conversions and miraculous healings. At this point, people in Samaria were probably looking up to Philip and leaning on him for leadership and guidance. He was right in the middle of God's, God's power and purpose and plan. Right place, right time. I have to be completely honest. <laughs> I would have maybe taken more than a moment to consider the angel's words. Maybe I would have asked around something that I like to call people polling. It, it sounds like this. What do you think? Uh, what do you think? what do you think would be the best thing for me to do? Or maybe I would have taken a moment to step aside and ask the Lord for peace on this decision. Uh, this is something that I like to call peace paralysis. Uh, and it sounds something like this. You know, I just don't have a peace about this. I've said it, and I've heard other people, other Christians say it. Or maybe I would have looked around at the situation and based my next move on what was going on around me, on the subjective circumstances. Sounds something like this. Based on what I see, this can't possibly be what I'm supposed to do. This makes no sense. Or maybe I would have come up with my own plan. Okay, here's how it's going to happen. I've got to wrap up a few things here at the office, meet up with some friends for lunch, and then uh, I'll hit the wilderness road to Gaza. But Philip doesn't do any of this. 
He doesn't people poll. He doesn't fall victim to peace paralysis. He doesn't let subjective circumstances dictate his next steps. And he doesn't come with his own plan. The text says, he rose and went. Philip does what many of us would find hard to do. He obeys immediately. Why? Because he knows that a word from God is trustworthy and is worth acting on. Philip's response is to rise and go. God's word leads Philip to action. And like we said, this is a desert place. I don't know if any of you have had desert moments or desert seasons in your life, but it's not always that much fun. Especially if you look back over your shoulder and see a life that once had a ton of purpose, responsibility, and significance fading into the background. When you look ahead down the wilderness road, there's nothing but barren land. Where's the opportunity? Where is the next objective? There's just sand and rock. I certainly had moments like this when I was in seminary. Um, So many hours in the library. For me, a little tiny library cubicle. That was my wilderness place. It was really hard to see ahead. It was really hard to see any opportunity. It was really hard to see what the next objective was. It just looked barren. And I had to constantly run through the question, is what I'm doing really worth it? Is the way I'm spending my time really amounting to anything? So I wonder, what are the voices like in your head when you're in the middle of a wilderness time? Do you seek to listen for the Lord and rely on the truth from his word that you already know? Or do you let second-guessing and whispered half-truths and whatever lies take over? Philip didn't even take the time to second-guess. He heard the word and went. But even if, he, if there were a conflict of wills, at this point, Philip probably would have said something like, when his will collides with mine, he wins. That sounds strikingly like one of the core values here at GPC. Let me just say it again. When his will collides with mine, he wins. Philip understands that when we're being obedient to God, there's always a point. There's always a reason. Because God's word is trustworthy. And when he speaks you better believe stuff is going to happen. Even if it's not totally clear where he's leading us. Even if it kind of looks like the wilderness. And for Philip, God had something very specific in mind. So we've seen that God's word is trustworthy because he has a plan. A second observation we can make is that God's word is trustworthy because he is ultimately in control. God's word is trustworthy because he is in control. Let's keep going in our text. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had to come to Jerusalem to worship, or he had come to Jerusalem to worship, and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet. 
Notice how God orchestrates the events perfectly down to this one precise pinpoint moment in time. This should not be surprising. This is the same God who spoke the entire universe into being. He said, let there be light, and there was light. With his word, stuff happens. He is in control. So God had worked out this uh, meeting with Philip to the second. The Ethiopian's journey was no quick hop, skip, and a jump. It probably took the better part of a month at a reasonable chariot pace. He'd traveled around 1,500 miles to get to Jerusalem to worship. I was now on his return trip. This was no chance meeting. This was divine appointment. And again, trusting the word from God, Philip obeys immediately. This time he goes on the jog, running further and deeper into God's plan. Now think about this. You have the chariot, the entourage of this um, high-ranking Ethiopian official rolling through the desert place, okay? And then you have Philip coming up, just following instructions. He's not really sure who he's going to encounter or what he's going to encounter. The angel says, run to this chariot. So he starts taking off. The chariot is not stopped. The chariot's moving. They're trying to get home. So he runs alongside of this chariot, and it's not, just to get a little perspective, we're not talking BMW pace on this, this chariot. It's not going super fast. So he can run and probably even walk alongside this chariot as it's going. But, I mean, it's kind of like a silly scene, but think about it. What would have happened if Philip had waited just a second? said, that's absurd. I'm not, I'm not running through the wilderness to chase down this chariot. That's, that's just silliness. What would have been the implications? He would have missed the vital link in the chain that would ultimately collect, connect the gospel to Africa through this Ethiopian eunuch. He would have missed being a part of that much, much bigger story. So, let's get back. Philip's on the jog, running to catch up to the chariot. The Ethiopian is sitting and reading out loud. And that's customary um, and practical since the Greek text he had on the scroll did not include punctuation or spaces. Uh, You had to sound out the words in order to get it right. It was a necessity. But how convenient is that? You have this Ethiopian eunuch reading out loud, so Philip doesn't have to guess what he's reading. Imagine Philip's surprise and excitement when he hears the high-ranking Ethiopian official reading from a scroll the words of the prophet Isaiah. He's hearing a description of his Lord from the lips of a stranger, the Savior of, of the world. Don't miss this. What are the chances he would be reading this particular passage at this particular time? A passage depicting the moments leading up to the cross. The humiliation of Jesus for the sake of all mankind. Jesus, the humble and silent lamb, going to death without a fight. Taking on the sin of the world. God in the flesh, willingly surrendering his life. It says, like a sheep to slaughter. This is the gospel. I can't imagine a better jumping point than right here in Isaiah. 
God has set up the details of this meeting down to the second. God is authoring his story, and Philip is part of it. Through God's word, lives are going to be transformed. Stuff is going to happen. So we've seen that God's word is trustworthy because he has a plan. Because he's in control. And we're about to see that God's word is trustworthy because Jesus is the word. Let's continue reading. And he, and he asked, do you understand what you are reading? And the Ethiopian said, how can I? Unless someone guides me. And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him in the chariot. So now Philip jumps on. He's now riding in the chariot with this Ethiopian eunuch. And here's the funny thing. The Ethiopian is on the return trip from Jerusalem, from the temple. He'd gone to Jerusalem to worship, and now he's headed back to Nubia. But what had he found there in Jerusalem? Was he allowed in the temple? Certainly not. No Gentile was allowed past the outer courts. Who had he talked to? How and why had he acquired an Isaiah scroll? These were, this was a pricey item that he had. <coughs> had no one told him about Jesus? Okay, he has the form of religion clearly in his mind. Pilgrimage journey, check. Physical temple, check. Tangible word of God on a scroll, check. But he's missing the all-important piece. He needs the key to unlock the words of the prophet. Philip hints that he has the key, and the Ethiopian invites him up. Now we're mobile, traveling down the, work, traveling down the desert road, Isaiah scroll in front, of, in front of them. The word of God. Let's go to verse 34. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself? Or about someone else. Again, incredible. He asks one of the most important questions in all of life. To put it another way, he essentially says, Who is this man that I'm reading about? I don't know if you've ever had a moment like that when you've been reading through the scriptures and you just are struck by the explanation, the description of Jesus. And you just have to sit back, put the Bible down and say, who is this? Who is this man? The Ethiopian has the desire, but he doesn't yet have the key. It was simply a matter of filling in the blanks. This is where Philip is. Imagine Philip riding down this dusty road in a chariot of a high-ranking Ethiopian official. He's heard the man reading from Isaiah. He's found out where the man is spiritually with one question. He's heard the man's question, and he knows the answer. And now Philip has this incredible teaching moment. No distractions, no interruptions, nothing but sand and rock all around. And he starts right where the man is and speaks the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no way Philip is taking credit for this. It's all Jesus. It's all God. It's all Holy Spirit. Listen to this quote from John Stott. Are we so foolish as to imagine that we can somehow, by our own argument or rhetoric, induce within him either spiritual understanding 
or life? No. It is not given to us to give sight to the blind or life to the dead. God alone is the author of light and life. The spoken word, the spoken word of God. Through the spoken word of God, light and life have come into being. In those moments on the dusty road, the words of the prophet came to life. The key is Jesus. He fits perfectly every time. The word is trustworthy because Jesus is the word. Listen to John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, Christianity is true. If he is not who he claimed to be, then Christianity is a fraud. It all centers on him. It all centers on Jesus Christ. Jesus is the word. The word is trustworthy. God's word is trustworthy because he has a plan. He is in control. Jesus is the word. And now, with all that in mind, because God's word is trustworthy, it anticipates a response. Let's look at verse 36. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now, this is one of my favorite moments in all of Scripture. The Ethiopian doesn't waste any time. He doesn't have to examine Philip's words. He doesn't have to fact check. He doesn't even have to wait for an invitation. Philip doesn't turn to him and say, hey, why don't, why don't you consider baptism? No, Philip's just exp- explaining the gospel, filling, filling in the blanks, putting Jesus' name where he needs to go in the Old Testament. He just knows it's trustworthy. Something in the eunuch's heart flips. He's been made ready by the Holy Spirit, by the words he's already been reading in Isaiah. And perhaps by even the whispers and murmurs in Jerusalem about the Messiah. And certainly by what Philip has been explaining as they roll down the dusty desert road. However it happens, the eunuch is ready to respond. He spots water, brings the chariot to a halt, which probably included an entourage, and says, let's do this. Why waste any time? He's baptized on the spot. Verse 39 When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Here we have the evidence that this indeed is a true conversion. The gospel is delivered by Philip, who is being led by the Spirit, and it's accompanied by great joy. When the gospel comes and is received, there is great joy. That's always the case. 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verse 6 says, So you received the message with great joy. Philip continues being led by the Spirit on up the coast from Azotus to Caesarea, preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. But we can also infer that the gospel is taken by the Ethiopian back to Nubia, which at that time would have been considered the ends of the earth. That's the rest of Acts 1.8 that I didn't read earlier. 
Some of you maybe were upset by that. But listen, here's, here's the verse in completion. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The word has prompted action. The word has prompted great joy. The word has prompted great hope. And the word has transformed lives and reached to the ends of the earth. God's trustworthy word anticipates a response. It anticipates action. And as we've seen in this text, what God says goes. When he speaks, you can rest assured it's going to happen one way or another. And it doesn't always follow a predictable course. So the words of Acts 1.8 are being fulfilled because when God speaks, stuff happens. His word is trustworthy because he has a plan. His word is trustworthy because he's in control. His word is trustworthy because Jesus is the word. His word is trustworthy because it's trustworthy, it anticipates a response. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever asked the question, hey, what is God's will for my life? Why is God not answering me? Why, when I pray, do I not get the answer that I'm looking for? I want to be guided. I don't have an angel speaking audibly to me, telling me where, which way to go. I don't have, the whole, I don't have a, an audible voice from the Holy Spirit saying, hey, go this way or go that way. What about me? What am I to do with this message? And my question in response to that question is, are you trusting in the word you've already received from God? See, God has written us this extraordinary love letter in the pages of this, of this book, of the Bible. He's written what his will is. And we have it. We already have it. We don't have to wait for an audible voice. He's spoken. So if God's word is trustworthy and what he says goes, then this has serious implications for our lives, for the way we conduct our business, for the way we interact with our family members, our children, our spouse, our friends, our coworkers, the way we resolve conflict and the attitude we approach each day with. So how are you responding to God's word? Do you believe it's trustworthy? Now, stick with me for a second because I'm going to fly through some scriptures and we're going to see um, what happens when we believe the word of God, when we take it as trustworthy and it really does impact our lives. If God's word says, may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, May you ever be captivated by her love. That's Proverbs 5, 18 to 20. Are we making the choice to rejoice? This is convicting for me because some days I rejoice more in a score of a soccer game than I do in the wife of my youth. That's sick. Okay? But here's where I'm prompted to dream a little. Imagine what my relationship would look like if every day was a celebration of my gorgeous wife. Whoa. Whoa. What if I actually respond to God's word as trustworthy? What if I even went so far as to aspire to loving her as Christ loved the church? Ephesians 5.25. That would mean giving up my rights for her sake. Doing dishes when I don't want to. 
taking out the trash before she walks into the kitchen and gets smacked with the stink of rotting diapers and tuna fish and on and on. Let's take another one. If God's word says sons are a heritage from the Lord, children a reward from him, like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Shouldn't that change the way I view my children? Especially the next time Lincoln sticks his hand in the toilet full of pee, or Amelia whines because she doesn't like chicken today, or Ethan unwinds an entire roll of toilet paper just to see what would happen, or if Claire says, I don't want to talk to you today because you didn't let me have dessert. Imagine if in the midst of those trying times, I could see my children as gifts who will one day be released into the world to make a difference with the power of God behind them, like arrows. Next one. If God says, the Lord your God is with you, he is mighty to save, he will take great delight in you, he will quiet you with his love, he will rejoice over you with singing. Shouldn't that impact our sense of worth? So what if you're single and lonely and you're upset that my first two examples were about spouse and children and all your life you've dreamed of having a family but God isn't providing? What if your self-worth and perspective on life was defined more by what God says about you than your marital status? What can really compare to the word of God that says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Jeremiah 31.3 Imagine if you really took God's word as trustworthy and your search for love was over. What if I took those same words and allowed them to captivate my heart? Would I still allow my ministry and my speaking to define my own self-worth? Or would I find security and rest in his love? That's convicting, that's hard. But if I take his word as trustworthy, it should impact the way I live. It should impact my actions. Let's keep going. If God's word says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. Will we run to him, trusting that there will indeed be relief? Instead of trying to fix everything on our own and control every outcome, If God says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to do his work, John 4, uh, 34. Could that change the whole perspective on work and career decisions that I have? What would that do if I really took it as trustworthy? If God's word says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. 1 Timothy 1.15. Do I believe that and live in the freedom of God's grace, even when, the gift, even when the guilt of my sin is still steaming and fresh? Even when I've just exploded on my kids for a minor annoyance? Do I take that humble attitude into my day and extend forgiveness in the same measure that I've been forgiven. If God's word says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on a rock, Matthew 7, 24. 
shouldn't that impact my life? What is it that you need to put into practice? If something specific comes to your mind as you've heard this story of the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip, or um, one of these texts that we just flew through, I really want to encourage you this morning to write it down somewhere. Write it in the margin of your Bible. Um, tweet it to yourself. Email it. Whatever. Write it down and pull it out sometime this week and say, yeah, that, that's a good reminder. God's word is trustworthy. It should be impacting my life. It should be making a difference. This has to be more than just a nice, nice story on Sunday morning. This has to become part of our lives. See, we already have God's word. We've already heard it. And if we're convinced that when God speaks, stuff happens, and his words are trustworthy, that should make a difference in our lives. We should be putting those words into practice. As Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch did, I hope you'll respond by, tr by trusting in the trustworthy word from the trustworthy God and put it into practice. Put into practice what we already know to be true and right and good and solid. He has a plan. He's in control. He is the word. Let's rejoice in the trustworthy word and allow him to transform our lives and the lives of those around us. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your guiding and your leading. Thank you for your word that we already have the word that you've spoken to us right before us. Lord, help us to believe. Increase our faith. Help us to trust fully in your word and know that it's trustworthy. That is true, it's right, it's good, it's solid. Lord, help it be a part of our daily lives. Lord, we can't take any credit for the work that you're doing in and through us. But we just want to rejoice. We want to rejoice this morning in all the many ways that you have blessed us in order that we could be a blessing to others. Lord, help us to live by your word. Help us to understand your word. Help us to see you and your word as trustworthy, that we could lead lives that are honoring and pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.